Okay, everybody ready? <clears throat> Um, so we've got nearly an hour together. Buddhist fellowship very craftily asks the monks to do talks at 11 o'clock so that we have to eat before 12, so you know we're not going to talk for too long. So this... Uh, Today is actually halfway through my stay in Singapore, so far. They've got me stacked up with workshops, classes, suitor classes, talks. Uh, so that's good. I'd like to come and share, actually get less opportunity than you might think. So it's very nice to come and share. Every time I do so, I always make this resolution that what I do I do as a resolution on the path to Nibbana. The reason is, it's very easy to have a belief or a faith in a way of thinking. But after a short while, that kind of, if you don't interact with it, it kind of slips away in the mind and becomes less and less important. It's rather like a, <clears throat> you know, a relative a cousin or a second cousin, and if you don't see them, if you don't go to meetings or go to a, the Christmas lunch or the birth, don't bother sending a birthday card, then after a while that person's going to kind of slip out of your, uh, out of importance in your mind, out of uh, importance in your life. So you have to go and interact with something if you want to make that thing uh, important or beautiful and you have to interact with it uh, if you want to make it grow and improve this is true for everything of course so uh, if you play the piano and you're a good pianist but you don't practice your ability is going to slide so in the same way with Dharma if we want to grow in Dharma if the teaching interests you and it will interest certain people and not other people. If it interests you, then the only way to really grow in it is to start to get more dedicated and interact more often. That's why when people are new to Dharma, they come to Dharma talks and they're like, this guy's really good, this one, nah, I don't like this one, and this person, nah, nah, got it wrong. What is the difference between a good Dharma talk and a not good Dharma talk? Basically, is how often you laughed. <laughs> it's whether it entertained you. If it entertains you and brings your attention in, you enjoy it more. And that's true if you go and see a comedian, uh, or if you go and see a storyteller, or an act, or a show. But when it comes to Dharma, after a while, doesn't take too long before you've heard all the Dharma talks, right? The, it's unlikely that the teacher is going to give you any new teaching. It can give you new stories. That's why we like to tell stories of personal things that happen to us. It's funny, for when you analyze public speaking, I, I teach a course in public speaking in university. 
when you analyze public speaking, uh, one of the interesting uh, analyses of it is that two main forms of presentation and one is where you're presenting facts and details and the other is when you're presenting personal things. And usually for men, we prefer facts and details and usually for women, they prefer the personal stories. Uh, put it this way, I learned this from a talk by somebody who worked for the New York Times. And she said that men want to know uh, what, how does the New York Times work? How many people do they have? How do they get the news in? How do they put it out? And the women want to know what, it's, what is it like for you to work at the New York Times? So I'm much more on the women's side myself. I think that's much more interesting. A few years ago, there was a talk by, um, who was he called, the, the happiness monk, happiness guy? Me, me, Matthew Ricard. Ricard, yes. And I think this was at the, now I'm going to try and say it in a Chinese accent, so don't blame me. Po Ming Su. Did I get, was that all right? Okay. You're very nice. <laughs> and when he came out, I, I wasn't there, but so, so I heard it reported when he came out, all the men were saying, wow, that was amazing. And all the women were saying, it was a bit boring because he just presented graph after graph after graph and statistics and statistics. So as we grow and mature a bit more in the Dharma, then we realize that you've probably heard all the Dharma talks, the teachings, the suttas, 84,000 teachings apparently, I don't think anybody counted them. I think 84,000 is the Indian word for lots. All of these suttas and things, but really the, the core topics in the suttas, in the teachings, are uh, fairly straightforward, fairly, um, they're very repetitive, so you're not going to hear so many new things. So uh, a bigger part, as you get more uh, mature in Dhamma, a bigger part of it is just the coming to interact. And it's a beautiful thing just to come out and interact, join with other people, join with a talk, whether it's entertaining or not, whether people made you laugh or didn't make you laugh, whether they put you to sleep. Well, then you had it came out and had a nice sleep. So, um, And also just the, the interaction, the chanting, the uh, offering of the food to the monks, to each other. Uh, this is a really beautiful way. The more that you interact with it, the more it will support you. And that's a straightforward law of the universe. Today's topic, quicker than, a, the, quicker than a ray of light. Uh, I like this topic title because it's a, a title of a pretty good Madonna song. Do you know that song? <laughs> and so the question is what happens when you go quicker than a ray of light, which according to standard physics is, n is not possible. The speeding up, they do say in Buddhism that thinking works at the speed of, uh, that thinking works at a very, very high speed. That as fast as you can think of something, you can be there. So as fast as you think of Mars, your mind is with Mars. 
the planet, not the chocolate. As fast as you can think of something 20 years ago, your mind is there. So our impression is that the mind is very fast. But I want to disagree with this uh, slightly and say that the mind uh, can be very fast but likes to slow things down. And this is the way that we uh, work in the world. And these are what are called story arcs. And this, has, uh, this is how we perceive time and the passing of time. Now most of you probably remember, even though it was a long time ago for some of you, your childhood. And in your, when you were really young, like a day or a week can just seem to go on forever, right? I remember summer holidays just went on and on and on and on. And it was six weeks now, like six weeks is, you know, nothing. What is it that changed your perception of time? What, why did it feel different when you were young to when you were old, older? I had the same kind of experience when I ordained as a monk and I got into the monastery and just the passage of time was so different. Everything was just so new. And the first month uh, of, being a, of being a monk felt like a year. The second month, second month felt like six months. The next four years felt like a few weeks. <laughs> so what is it that changes the passage, your experience of the passage of time? And this is what is called uh, story arcs. And a story arc means we interact with the world through stories. Stories uh, contextualize things that are happening. And when you have a nice story for something, it, the story will spread across a period of time. And when you don't have a story for something, then you, your attention starts to get much, much sharper. I'll give you a clear example. Uh, when you are learning to drive, and you get into the car and they say, here's the gear stick, here's the clutch, here's the accelerator. I've heard that a lot of people don't know how to drive manual gearboxes these days. Is that true? Okay. That's terrible. <laughs> it's one of the pleasures of driving is having that degree of control of the gearbox. And Anyway. Uh, and so you're trying to navigate, like pressing the clutch, changing gear, using the accelerator. You've got to come off the, off the brake just as you change gear and let the clutch up. You have to press the accelerator as you're pressing the clutch. This is how you drive manual gearboxes, for those who don't know. And on top of that, your instructor is telling you, you have to look in your rear mirror, you have to look in your side mirror, you have to look physically over your shoulder, you have to come back. Like there's so many things to think about and what happens is you mess it up and the reason is each particular movement has its own story press the clutch that has to go in time with moving the gear that has to go in time with uh, adding some power on the accelerator has to go in time each movement has its own little story and you're trying to juggle these 10 20 stories at once so what happens is you get confused and it kind of breaks down and it's difficult to do. The more often that you do something, the more familiar it becomes. The more your story can start to arc 
the wider the arc of the story. So after a while, the, your driving instructor says, okay, move off onto the road, and you've got it. Clutch down, change gear, accelerate it, look behind me, look in my mirror, look in my rear view mirror, out, out, indicate, out we go. Don't cross your hands on the steering wheel, right? And you can just move out, and then you're thinking, okay, I'm in first gear, I have to go into second and third gear, I have to judge how far I am from the curb. So then what you've done is you've broken down the act of driving into three or four components, pulling out, driving, lights, things like that. Then after, you've been, after you pass your driving test and you get that initial panic because you're in the car with no instructor, do you remember that? <laughs> I thought, oh my God, they're really going to trust me with a, <laughs> with a motor vehicle on the road. Then what happens, you say to yourself, um, you're sitting at home and you say to yourself, I'm going to work. And your story arc spans the whole going to work, right? You don't think about it. Your body just does it. You go out the door, you lock the door, you go down the steps, get into the car, you check your gearbox, blah, 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 blah. You don't even pay any attention to it because all of these movements get parceled off to the subconscious. Your subconscious can manage most things in fact, your subconscious will manage your life better than you can, right? If I was to place a beam, a plank of wood or a beam of steel on the floor here and ask you to walk across it, most of you could do it pretty much without thinking. If I place that beam of steel high up in the sky, then can you walk across it? If, if the fall is going to kill you, why does it become more difficult to complete the task when it's more important to do it? Because your conscious mind is starting to take over, your, your conscious mind is actually not very good at doing things. This is why, uh, for example, I did a meditation workshop with a golfing team, one of the trainers for uh, the Thai golf team. And his idea was he wanted the golfers to practice walking meditation between the holes. Anyway, they, they weren't very into it and it didn't work. So. <laughs> um, and what he said was when they set up the shot and they've planted their feet and their hips and they've got everything right, got all the components right, he says he tells them to think of a cartoon image when they make their stroke. Because if the conscious mind starts to interfere with the swing, they're not going to hit the ball correctly. So the unconscious, or I should say the subconscious mind, uh, will do things much more effectively than you can. Where you get involved, the conscious you, this is where you have accelerated learning. So you can learn things faster and better. And one of the things that sports coaches do, for example, is they start to break down the movements of the people that they're training. So I like boxing. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> uh, I like to watch the boxing. As a peaceful person that trains people in peace and controlling your mind, uh, I have no excuse. But what they do is people will go in and start kind of swinging, and the boxing trainer will get them to start breaking it down. Look at where your hips are. Look at where your shoulders are. Look at the rotation of your body. Look at the rotation of your hand. We'll start to break it down into small movements. 
But when that person gets into the ring, they have to let go of everything that they've learned. So story arcs are what make us comfortable in our actions. Actually, as human beings, we don't like to be too aware of ourselves. We like things to go in a nice, familiar pattern, especially introverts. We like things to be very nice and familiar. We don't like surprises. Um, so the more your story arcs can spread, the more kind of comfortable and less conscious you will feel. When we come to do meditation, on the other hand, this we're going to start to reverse this process because the story arcs are where you get unmindful. If you have something like, okay, walk to the shops and then you're off. You go you know, mentally you're off, you go out the door, you lock the door, you go down the steps, you avoid the cat sleeping on the step, you go out and you buy the things, you come back. It's one story, right? Well, instead of that, when we come to do meditation, we're going to start to break this up. That's the idea of meditation, and break it up into smaller and smaller movements. So one of the trainings that you might do on a meditation retreat, for example, uh, is doorway training. And every time you go through a doorway, your mind is always already through the door and doing the thing that you want to do, right? If you're going to make a cup of tea, you get up and your body, your mind's already kind of gone into the kitchen and is making the cup of tea. So your awareness throughout the process is going to be relatively slight. The only time that awareness really comes up is when you end one story arc and start another story arc. So I'm playing on the computer, I'm doing my Photoshop, and then suddenly I remember myself, and, oh, and then I'll feel stiff. Why didn't I know that I felt stiff a minute beforehand? So I'll stretch and then I'll be like, ah, I need a cup of tea because I'm English. So that a new story arc, I've left my Photoshop story arc, I'm now in my cup of tea story arc. I'll get up, I'll move over, I'll make the cup of tea. And then when I sit down and I've got my cup of tea, I'll be like, okay, next thing, Facebook arc, okay. Go and turn on Facebook, have a little check, Facebook, email, have three or four things that I would check. So we're starting to break up these story arcs when we do meditation, uh, break up or in interrupt the thinking patterns so that you start to become aware of smaller and smaller movements. So the doorway training is every time you go through a door, you stop. Make a little story arc of reaching for the door handle and turning the door handle. This will interrupt your thinking. This will interrupt your stories. And what it will do is start to make the day seem, uh, it makes the day seem longer, but in a nice way because it's more alert. Remember, every time you come to the end of a story arc, you have a moment of alertness. You have a moment where your attention had been stationed with something. Now suddenly your attention is back with yourself. And you have a moment that I like to call a deciding moment because when my attention has returned, that's when I decide the next thing that I'm going to do. So do you notice this? When your attention, your consciousness gets stationed with some activity, you turn on Photoshop, you're gone for two hours. You go and uh, make breakfast, 
so, so 40 minutes or something, depends on the size of your family. You get into your car and you go to work and you drive to work. I don't know how long it takes you here. It's not such a big deal for you guys, but in Bangkok, everything takes an hour and a half to get to. So that's a long story arc. That you get into the taxi and then you're gone because you know it's an hour and a half. So we're starting to break up these story arcs. This is what mindfulness is. The mind gets stationed at some activity, something that you are doing. We want to interrupt that process and return attention to yourself. I don't want to get confused with atta and anatta. Uh, you know what I mean by self. I'm not saying that it's some permanent, you know, hyper real atman that you know lives in the universe. By self, I just mean this here. We're supposed to return our attention to the physical body, know what the body is doing, know what the mind is doing with mindfulness. So this is what mindfulness is. It's interrupting these story arcs. And the shorter and shorter and shorter you start to make these story arcs, the more you get a sense of your time coming back. Long story arcs are where you're not very aware of yourself. I get this when I read books, for example, if the book is any good. For some reason, I like to read books that I, that I don't enjoy very much. Um, I like to read difficult texts because I feel a sense of like accomplishment after I've read it. But every so often, I pick up a book that's just enjoyable. Uh, I don't usually tell people. I'm usually a bit ashamed of those books. That <laughs> I like... Um, really, 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 really bad science fiction from the 1950s that <laughs> I turn on that book and that's it. I can be gone for a day. I'm just in the really stupid stories. Um, usually they're quite short, like 100 pages, so I can do it in like a long afternoon. That's it. That my story arc is gone. The whole day, when next time I look up and I'm aware of myself, the whole day is gone. So mindfulness is interrupting these, uh, this process. We want to break it up into shorter and shorter and shorter things. You may know in the Mindfulness Sutta, uh, it says uh, uh, for a monk when he reaches forward, he knows he's reaching forward. When he picks up his bowl, he knows he's picking up his bowl. When he puts on the robe, he knows he's putting on the robe. When he's taking a bite of food, he knows he's taking a bite of food. When he's urinating, he knows that he's urinating. So all these little, it's called re, uh, mindfulness of refined movements. And all these little movements we can start to make into their own little story arc. So just going to the bathroom, stop. Make a new arc, make a new story. Be careful as you go into the bathroom, your hand reaching forward for the door you going through, sitting down, doing your business. All of these things you can start to bring a lot of awareness to. And it gives you a sense of your, your life awareness. Your meditation is supposed to be, or Dharma is supposed to be waking up. And this is why it feels like waking up. You're less and less inclined to enter into these long story arcs that kind of contextualize your day and bring back to smaller and smaller and smaller things. One of the beautiful things that comes from this is your 
um, you, t you start to get joy in very small things. You get the joy back because you're paying attention to it. For me, I love a cup of tea. I'm English. The only thing better than a cup of tea is a cup of tea and a piece of toast. The only thing better than a cup of tea and a piece of toast is a cup of tea and a piece of toast with Marmite. And a cup of tea and a piece of toast with Marmite watching the boxing. That's just great. <laughs> you know, there's that teacher some years ago and he's always saying to people, when you walk along the corridor, just walk along the corridor. When you're sitting on your seat, just sit on your seat. When you're standing up, just stand up. And then one of his students saw him in the ne next morning and he was sitting at the breakfast table, eating his breakfast and reading the newspaper. And they said to him, you, you told us to do only one thing at a time. If we're sitting down, to just sit down. And look at you, you're eating your breakfast and reading the newspaper. He said, yes, when you eat your breakfast and read the newspaper, just eat your breakfast and read the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our uh, practice, interrupting the thinking interrupting this thinking process, reawakening that joy in small things. Usually when I have a cup of tea, often the cup of tea is gone before I realize it. Right? This happened some time ago. I, my friend called me around to his house, uh, usually because he wants me to do some work for him. But uh, he, he tempts me around with food, you see, and then gives me a bunch of work to do. And so he called me up and said, okay, we, we'll make you lunch. And I know that it's, anyway. So, you know, what would you like for lunch? I'm like, oh, nothing. You know, I'm a monk, whatever you give me is okay with me. And like, uh, would, would you like, you know, salad? I'm like, oh, you know, whatever you want to give me because I'm, I'm a monk and I don't have preferences. As a, you know, uh, rice, would you like rice? I'm like, yeah. You know, maybe not so much on the rice. <laughs> you know why I don't like rice? I say this every year, but you always laugh, so I'm going to say it again. You know why I don't like white rice? When I was six years old, my brother told me it was boiled maggots. <laughs> Would you like pasta? Would you like this? Would you like that? Would you like potato? And so I'm just, whatever you want to offer me, that's fine. But in my head, I'm like, potato, potato, potato. <laughs> and I got to his place, and we had potato, and I enjoyed the conversation with him, and our work projects that we would do, I really enjoyed. And I was like, yes, I've got potato, and then we're talking about our project, and then I look at my plate, and I realize I've already eaten my potato. I Like, I missed it. I'd eaten it, and I'd been so busy talking, I'd missed eating the potato. I'm like, no, give me another one, <laughs> another potato. So this is why we, we interrupt these processes, keep bringing the attention back to what you're doing. You start to get this feeling of enjoyment in small things. Um, uh, taking pleasure in just the, the, the little things, you know, the birds chirping, the cup of tea, just the walking backwards and forwards. One is that you start to enjoy it more, but the other is you get the feeling of getting your life back. And people sometimes ask me, like, why do meditation and give up desire? Aren't you supposed to enjoy life, live it to the max? Like, yeah, you live life to the max when you're present for it. You don't live life to the max when you're 
jumping out of aeroplanes and parachutes and going to the cinema and watching Avatar in 3D uh, and, <laughs> uh, and things like that. You enjoy life when, when you're awake for it, when you're present for it. So this process of interrupting, uh, interrupting your thought processes, interrupting your thinking, is what brings us back to mindfulness. It's a difficult sell with many people in the West, especially because thinking is so over-cherished and over-emphasized. And your school teaches you to think, be a good thinker, a critical thinker. And, and then the meditation teacher says, just put your thinking aside. It seems to be, uh, seems to be a dichotomy. The thinking, actually, your thinking is less reliable than you think it is. Most thinking goes according to habits rather than what is actually right or wrong, rather than what is actually logically true. There's a thing a few years ago, they had this test. They had people read a short story, short funny story, and then give the story marks for how funny it was. So out of 10, you give it three marks if it's not very funny, 10 marks if you think it's hilarious. And so they split the students uh, up into two sides. And they were both given the exact same story to read. But one side of the one set of the students were told to read the story while they're holding a pen in their teeth. And the other set was told to read the story while they're holding a pen in their mouth. And then they're asked to mark how funny the story was. What do you think the results were? Do you think, the, do you think it made any difference, the pen? Does the pen in the mouth make any difference? No? Shouldn't do, right? Because the story is funny or not funny. Right, so it shouldn't make any difference actually did make a difference. So what do you think? Did the students who hold the pen in their teeth find the, funny, find the story funnier? Or did the students who hold the pen in the mouth find the story funnier? Raise your hand if you think teeth. Raise your hand if you think mouth. Okay. Rest of you, no idea. Okay, the answer was the teeth. Because when you, hold the, when you read the story holding the pen in your teeth, you're making a smile. And when you hold it in your mouth, <laughs> you're making a miserable face. <clears throat> What's interesting about this research is you believe that your thinking is clear and critical. And you just don't understand how many things are affecting your thinking. It's the same for sitcoms on television. If a sitcom has a laughter track, most people, when you ask them, find it annoying. And if your consciousness comes to it and you know they're just playing a tape of people laughing, it's just annoying. The weird thing is you will enjoy the show more because of the laughter track even though you will swear that you don't like the laughter track. So a lot of things, you, your thinking is not driven by you. 
It's not I having this clear interpretation of the world and this is what I think. Another experiment they did was with uh, fake interviews. So they ask students, they usually do these things in universities because it's uh, you know, part of the research in the uni and because students will do anything for $5. <laughs> so they had students come in uh, and be interviewed and the test subject was the interviewer and the interviewer would would mark the students who came in on whether they were uh, capable, technically capable, or socially, socially personable. And the students were given a set of answers that they were to answer. So all the students who came in gave very, very similar answers. The variable, the thing that was different for the test was the weight of the resume. And when they handed across their resume, the heavier the resume, the more capable that person would be judged. The lighter the resume, the more sociable they'd be judged. And if you add any colors or smells to the resume, you would get judged very highly for people skills. So even if you're really being as objective as you possibly can to say, what do I think this person is? Things that you don't see and don't know are influencing you. So this shows that our thinking is not quite as reliable as we like to think it is. Most people think in patterns. Most people believe things that they've thought in the past. It's interesting. The more often you think something, the more familiar that thought will become. And there's what's called familiarity bias, which means something that seems more familiar to you will seem more correct and true. So we, our practice is one of interrupting uh, the thinking. And what happens is, as you interrupt the thought processes and keep re-establishing mindfulness, you get more and more trust that actually you don't need these long story arcs to organize your world. You don't need to worry about things so much. You can actually just be there in the present moment and your life actually works just as well, if not better. The faster and faster you do this, the shorter and shorter you make, you, you, when your mind gets stationed somewhere, you can interrupt it and bring it back. There will come a moment, there will come a moment where suddenly the mind stops. And what's happening is everything is just moving on around you, but the mindfulness is just straight there, clear, present, and no longer being drawn out into anything. No more story arcs, it's just there. At this time, uh, mindfulness will become quite effortless. To interrupt the stories and bring your attention back is going to take an effort, a force of will, but when the mind has stopped still, then there's no more effort needed. There's a meditation teacher in uh, Thailand called Ajahn Brahmot. Uh, he's quite likely to be an arahant. He's quite likely to be uh, enlightened. Uh, he's certainly kind of very highly attained. And he always teaches like this. Mindfulness is effortless. You don't put in any effort. I was sat in front of him and I did, you know, he looks into your mind while you're sat with him. And he looked... He was looking into 
the interviewing with a series of monks, about 15 of us. And uh, actually, I wanted to use one of his venues in Bangkok for Dharma talks. That was why I went to see him. But he wasn't very interested. He's like way too enlightened to care about things like that. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just do my meditation. And I was sat there doing my meditation. Not even that well, I thought. Anyway, I opened my eyes. And when I opened my eyes, he turned and looked at me and said, just now you made your body very bright. He said, do it again. It's like, duh. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll try. He said, no, you must never try. If you try it, you're not doing it. And I thought to myself, didn't Yoda say that to Luke Skywalker in Skywalker? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I better clean my thoughts up. His, uh... But is he right or is he wrong? The, the problem with people who are very highly attained is they don't know what it's like not to be very highly attained. <laughs> right? My, my own teacher, he came to me. <laughs> We had a time where we had to plant our, our mosquito nets out in the fields and everybody was supposed to go out and stay in, under the net, you see, for two weeks. And actually what the monks do is they go and put their net out in the fields, but they stay in their rooms. It's Thailand, it's a, you get used to it. Actually, I don't think you ever do get used to it. And he came along and said, um, I was very confused in my first couple of years. That was my main state of mind was confusion. He said, oh, Pandit, what are you confused about? I was like, I don't even know that. <laughs> and he said, oh, come back when you know what you're confused about. <laughs> and then if you get into like lust and desire, he'd say, oh, it's no good for you, so don't have it. Like, that doesn't work. <laughs> the Buddha said the same thing. He said that while he was a bodhisattva, still investigating Dhamma, he looked into his mind and he thought, what if I separate my thoughts into two kinds, wholesome and unwholesome? This is, by the way, the definition of right thought or right intention. On the unwholesome side would be thoughts of, uh, thoughts of greed, thoughts of uh, ill will and thoughts of harm harmfulness or violation. And if one were to think any of these thoughts, they would be bad for yourself, they would be bad for other people, they would block wisdom and hinder the path to enlightenment. He said, the moment I realized that, I cut off and abandoned all unwholesome thoughts. Yeah. It's a very Indian way of thinking this. Like, I realized this, so boom. It's not that easy for the rest of us. I still have thoughts of ill will. When people do things I don't like and, and I see things I don't like, you know, uh, Donald Trump making some crazy new thing, I don't like that. I want him to fail. It's a thought of ill will. I can't just say that's no good for me. It's gone. So this teaching of, uh, by the way, he also said the opposite of those thoughts Opposite of uh, greed is renunciation or giving up, nekamma, the thought of giving things up. And that's the good side, that's right thought, uh, of thoughts of non-ill will and non-harmfulness. Non-harmfulness, non-harmfulness, you may know, is ahimsa, 
which is what Gandhi based his uh, philosophy on. The Buddha said, if I was to think these good thoughts all day and all night, that would be completely blameless. I would be blameless for thinking those thoughts. But thinking thoughts makes the body tired. And if the body becomes tired, the mind will not concentrate. So I abandoned those thoughts also. Interesting. So right thought is part of the Eightfold Path, so you should engage in right thought, but there comes a time you have to give up all of the thinking. So Ajahn Brahmot said this to me, you know, no, you must never try. And my argument against him is, it's all right for you, you're enlightened, you can just sit there and be perfect and not have to make an effort. But for the rest of us, we have to make an effort, we have to try. So our effort that we are making is this process of interrupting the thoughts, interrupting the story arcs, coming back, getting the attention back faster and faster and faster. At some point then, the attention will just snap and you're there, you're bright, you're clear, you're present, effortless mindfulness. It's quarter to twelve. And so there's just a few minutes in case anybody has any thoughts. Anyone has any question? Raise your hand quicker than the ray of light. Bhante, I like to know in the Atana Tiya Sutta, verse number two, there is one word. Mahaviro, and then a translator put that as Almighty Hero. I think the Buddha confirmed himself that he was never Almighty. So, do you think it is correct to describe him as Almighty? <laughs> uh, I don't, because it's not connected to the topic today, but. Um, almighty is a word that the Christian word that they use for God. So for me, the early Pali Tech Society translators liked to use relig uh, Christian words in their translations. The modern translators don't like to do that. So almighty is a Christian term and that's for God. So I wouldn't uh, use that. The Buddha never claimed to be a God. Uh, he never demonstrated himself as a god. And in fact, it's the point that he wasn't a god that makes it relatable. You know, if God comes and does something, you're like, well, you can do it, you're God, but we can't. But if a human being comes and attains enlightenment, human being who thought and suffered and had fear. Remember that sutta the Buddha had, um, he was talking about where he's afraid of ghosts. You know, this is a, an ordinary person, but attain to enlightenment. And to me, that was what was inspiring, that he isn't a god. I should say Mahayana Buddhism increasingly deified the Buddha, made him more and more and more into a god. So that then he wasn't a human being, he was just like a great being that came down and pretended to be ordinary to inspire people. And Then there's one sutta I read, the introduction to Pali suttas is thus have I heard. But the introduction to this, one of the Mahayana suttas was, 
the Buddha set forth his mind and shined rays out of his mind and each ray split into a billion other little rays and each ray enlightened an entire universe of beings where even the blades of grass became arahants and those also displayed rays of beams that you're like, wow. <laughs> and it's a natural process. You see it even in the Pali Canon. Actually, there's a deification process where the, where the Buddha gets made more and more into a... You start as a human being, then you become into a superhuman being, then you become a demigod and then a god. So it's this, this arc. Uh, there was a funny story in when the British actually first discovered Kapilavattu, the place where the Buddha used to live, and he left through the East Gate, right, on the Great Renunciation, the East Gate. And in Sri Lanka, it had been taught that the Buddha was three times the size of a human being. Because you want to make him bigger, right? He's an important person, someone you respect. You want to try and make him better. And so when, they dis when the British archaeologists discovered uh, one of the two possible sites for Kapilavattu, uh, this team of Sri Lankans went and they wanted to measure the door to see if a human being that was three times as big as a human being could get through. And their conclusion was he wouldn't have been able to get through the door. Therefore, he wasn't three times the size, he was one and one-third the time size of a regular human being. I think it's natural that we want to deify the people we respect and look up to. Uh, there are problems with that too, of course. Anybody else? I might mention also the thinking uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy, the, the, your thinking shapes the world. You, you think that your thinking on, like just that you can be aware of the world, but actually your thinking shapes your experience of the world. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, you change your form of thinking and it changes how you relate to the world. You know, Ajahn Brahm had a story about this. Actually, he had a story, but I'm going to change it. Uh, he had this thing. When he was a younger monk, he was in the uh, end of the Vasa, end of the range retreat period, the monks are all piled onto the back of pickup trucks and get driven around to different temples. So you go to temple after temple after temple and these are very rough roads and you're in a pickup truck, no air con, and it's pretty hard going. And the monks actually do this for because, again, it's good to interact with each other. It's interacting with other monks and monasteries that enliven your practice. So as they're going along on this road and they're all potholes and very bad road, every f couple of minutes they go over a really bad bump and he'll bang his head. Ajahn Brown would bang his head on the roof of the truck. Do you know this story? Have you heard him tell this story? He'd bang his head on the top of the truck. He's like, ah, these roads are so bad. Ah, my head, it really hurts. And then go, ah, like I want to sit in the front and then, ah. And then he'd look at the other monks and you see, and they would just, when every time they go over a bump, they were just laughing. So he, he thought to himself, what if I change my view? What if instead of being angry and annoyed at banging my head on the roads, the state of the roads and being forced into the back of a pickup truck, why don't I change my attitude? So he started to laugh. 
And when he laughed, it didn't hurt the top, didn't hurt his head anymore, just by changing his thinking. That's how Ajahn Brahm tells the story. I don't think it's correct. I think in those days, you see, Ajahn Brahm would have been taller than most Thai monks. I think they were laughing at him banging his head. <laughs> okay, any last question? Yes, go ahead. Hi, um, just now you mentioned about, you know, the, if one were to think wholesome thoughts all day and all night, one would be tired out, right? Uh, so it'd be more useful to let go of uh, thinking. So actually, does it mean by... Uh, I mean, most of the time we would think, right? Like, um, does it mean um, the, when we let go of thinking that it's during meditation, that's meditation time? Oh. You know, what I found was... Um, because the stories organize your life and we relate to the world through stories and so when you interrupt the stories and interrupt the thinking you, I mean to me at first I felt a bit of a panic that I wouldn't be able to organize myself I wouldn't be able to do my work you know I have to think about work and plans and sales targets and things but actually when I would break it down what I found was I operated just as well in the world. And in fact, when you, when you leave things to the subconscious to take care of and keep the conscious mind really awake and present, then uh, things you tend to do better at work, tend to do better at doing things. You actually don't need those long story arcs. So that's what I found was that actually the thinking doesn't help that much. I used to work in this jazz club and I had a, it's not a good environment for mindfulness. Uh, live music and it's packed out and, um, and also I was the manager, made it worse. And we had a, when we sold beer, we'd sell beer in jugs because it was a, that kind of classy establishment. And we put the beer tap on and it would take about nine seconds to fill the jug up. And I'd started doing meditation and I was trying to break up because work was just like the whole day and then <sighs> at the end of it. So I wanted to break it up. So when I pour the beer into the jug, nine seconds, I just... <sighs> okay, right, that'll be £4.50, please, and then back on to work. And just that moment, because I... I was learning how to take moments and just return my attention to myself. Just made the night, it made the night longer because your sense of time changes, but just so much more grounded and enjoyable. Yeah. So I don't think you do need the thoughts as much as you think you do. You listen to enlightened people like Eckhart Tolle um, or Nisargadatta, they say that Actually, the mind just stays with the mind, and it's beautiful and it's pristine. Thoughts come up when you need to accomplish something, and then they disappear. And I think that's how it should be. We have thoughts like Bangkok traffic jams. Nothing flows when you've got too many cars on the road, right? It's the same in your mind. You have too many thoughts in your mind, juggling too many things. Nothing flows, nothing moves, no freedom. So... It's a case of trust, I think, but yeah, breaking up those story arcs 
you, you can still operate in the world. Hmm. Last one, if anyone has an urgent question. Are we all good? Thank you, Bhante, for the talk. Um, you know, when I have feelings of lust, anger, as well as uh, anxiety, um, I find that it's easy to observe the thoughts, um, especially bringing the breath back to the body. But sometimes, um, when the thoughts are not so present, but the feelings are quite uh, overwhelming, uh, how do we stay with these feelings or like what you said just now, do we change our attitude towards it? Yeah. The, um, one of the things the Buddha taught to Saka, the king of the gods, he said desire is ruled by thinking. When there is thinking, desire is fueled. When the thinking stops, the desire stops. It's an interesting thing that you want to test because it's not as obvious as it might seem. Buddha did give, um, like I say, this teacher, Ajahn Brahmaz, is just like, well, just don't think it. Or like my abbot, he's like, well, just don't think those things. It's not that easy. So the thing about a Buddha is a Buddha is able to teach the com teachings complete as opposed to just an arahant who just says, hey, guys, this is really good and just be like me. So the Buddha did actually give five methods for controlling distracting thoughts. The first method was to knock the thought out with a different thought. So the analogy was like when you make furniture, uh, this is when screws and nails and things, and metal was hard to come by. When you make furniture, you drill a large hole through the two bits of furniture that you fit together, and you put in a tight peg that will hold them together. And so he said, just when you want to repair the furniture, you knock that peg out with a thinner peg, with a smaller peg, if you can think of this. This would have been an analogy that people would have understood at the time. To me, it's if you want to knock out the cotter pin in a gear link chain on a British Leyland A-series engine, you use a... Yeah, I've probably lost you already, haven't I? <laughs> Um, so you replace one thought with another thought. So if you have these unwholesome thoughts, you replace them with good thoughts. Use the good thoughts and knock out the bad thoughts. Yeah, it's one, one method. Second method was to slow the thinking down. Just like a man who was running would think, what if I was to jog? And a man who was jogging would think, what if I was to walk? A man who was walking is, what if I was just to amble? A man who is ambling is, what if I was to sit down? in the same way that you slow the thought processes down. Uh, the third way was, or not in sequence, but uh, to see the horror or the disgust in the unpleasant thoughts. So when you see, when you look at the thoughts directly and you see just how damaging this is for you, thoughts of anger, hatred, greed, uh, you will naturally give up those thoughts in the same way as a dead and decaying dog if a corpse of a dead and decaying dog was to be draped around the shoulders of a young man or young woman who is fond of their appearance, 
what would that young man or young woman do? This is in the sutta, very graphic, right? Uh, would naturally throw that dead dog off their shoulders. In the same way, when you look at the unwholesome aspect of the thoughts, you just want to throw it off. So that gives you the, the way to deal with it. Another way to deal with it is just to look away in the same way as if I was to look at something that I dislike and is causing me distress and I was to turn away and look at something else that doesn't cause me distress. So looking away was one. Uh, then the fifth method that he said was if all of those fail, then you grit your teeth, you press your tongue to the top of the mouth, you clench your fists and say, I'm not going to think that thought. So these were the five methods that the Buddha gave for controlling thoughts. I have a sixth method. <laughs> if all those five methods don't work, just go to bed. <laughs> okay, that's it for today. Uh, I may see some of you later. Okay. Can okay. we say sadhu three times? So if you want to hear more...